scripture reading. We'll start in the book of Acts, chapter 28. Acts 28, verse 17. To the end of the chapter. So, this is the record of Paul in Rome and in prison there. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then we'll turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. First of all, beginning at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then we'll go to chapter 3, starting at verse 1 as well. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So far, our scripture reading. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the first few chapters, first two chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul is writing about some tremendous themes about the plan of God to bring together Jews and Gentiles into one church, to bring all things under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, under him who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that the Lord already had this plan from before the foundations of the world. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul is about to continue in prayer for the church, but he digresses for a moment. In verses 1 through 13, he, just before that prayer, he digresses before he comes to that prayer. And what is it that motivates the apostle to digress? Well, we find his motivation in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul is in prison when he's writing this letter. And he senses that his readers may be distressed because of the fact that he's in, in prison. He realizes that the church in Ephesus, that the members there might be discouraged because he's in prison. They may be losing heart. Why is this part of God, God's plan? What's going to happen to the church if, if, if the apostle, the founder of the church, is, is in prison in Rome? And so he wants to encourage them. And the principles that he sets out in verses 1 through 13 are principles which can be applied to all of God's people. Whether we are suffering ourselves or a loved one is suffering, whether we're distressed for the sake of someone else or we experience suffering in the church, 
we too need encouragement. And so this message of do not lose heart comes to us as well. Do not lose heart on account of what you are suffering. And there are three main points in the first 13 verses that we'll consider. First of all, Christ is over all. Secondly, the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to you. And in the third place, you've been called to be ministers of God's grace. So in verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice what he doesn't write. He doesn't write, I am a prisoner of Nero, or a prisoner because of the Jews, or a prisoner of Rome. Right? He could have blamed the Jews for falsely accusing him, and that's why he ended up in Rome in prison. But he's not bitter. He doesn't point a finger at them. He sees himself as a prisoner for Christ. It's important also to notice that Paul doesn't see himself there because perhaps God was inattentive, or maybe God was looking the other way for a moment, and then this is what happened. It's not as if God made an error, as if God is not sovereign, as if this was an accident. Paul had been writing already in chapter 1 about the eternal plan of God in Christ, and he knows that his imprisonment is part of that eternal plan. Just as the death of Christ was part of God's eternal plan. He had written that Christ is seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. All things are subject to Christ. God has put all things under his feet. That includes Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Paul knows that his entire life is subject to the sovereign authority of Christ. The same Christ who forced him to stop persecuting the church and sent him to Antioch, the same Christ that made him to be an apostle of the gospel. So it wasn't ultimately the Jews or Nero who put him in prison. It was Christ who put Paul in prison. And all, th- all things are under the lordship of Christ. So then Paul's imprisonment is also under the lordship of Christ. So Paul is saying to the Ephesians, my imprisonment, that's not some kind of mistake. That's not some, some kind of glitch in God's plan. God has not lost some of his control and to, to Nero, for example. On the contrary, I am in prison for Christ on your behalf. I am suffering, but it is for your glory. I've been given the stewardship of God's grace for you Gentiles. I'm the least of all saints, but I've been given the burden to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. At one time, Paul had been a very different man. He had been a persecutor of the church. He, he even he hated the Lord Jesus Christ, but then he met the one who he was persecuting on the road to Damascus. Right? He met the Lord Jesus. He found out who Jesus really is and what he stands for. And he understood then what grace is and how profoundly that changes people and saves lives and gives true meaning and true purpose to life. And then Paul says, I, I had no choice but to preach this. Elsewhere he writes, For necessity laid, is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And now he's in prison for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the Gentiles. Because he was the apostle who was specifically burdened with the task of preaching to the Gentiles. To make them into one family the family of God with the Jews who believed in Christ. 
And we read from Acts 28 how this burden for the Gentiles motivated him to preach under all circumstances. He was imprisoned for two whole years, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It is because he had received this burden from his Lord and Master that he was willing to go wherever he had to. Paul is willing to go wherever this burden takes him and suffer what he needs to suffer because he knows that he is under Christ, working for Christ, and his life is in Christ. Well, congregation, what does this teach us? It teaches us that we also are called to serve no matter what our circumstances are. To serve God wholeheartedly, whether you are in riches or poverty, in health or in sickness. The Apostle Paul was given the burden of preaching the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles. But now he's in prison, but did that change things for him? Can he say, well, my life's on hold now? That this part of my life is not under the authority of Christ? That God's providence has somehow passed me by? Certainly not. And again, congregation, isn't this true for us as well? Does God's providential care not work the same way in our lives? Are we also not under Christ? And are we not to accept all things that happen in our lives as also under the authority of Christ ultimately? Are we to think that there are times when God's providence is absent from our life? That there are certain parts of our life, maybe there's days or weeks or maybe even years that that are not under the lordship of Christ, that somehow there was a glitch in God's care for us. Well, that's not what we learn from the letter to the Ephesians. God's providential care is not on hold once in a while. And he doesn't put your life on hold once in a while in that regard. We know from Scripture that in Christ you are a new creation, that The life of the believer is hidden in Christ. So our life is is never on hold. Whatever your situation, whether you have a debilitating disease or or a major crisis in your life or or you're becoming old and that's having an effect on your life, we could never say that none of these things are not under the authority of Christ. God does not even allow a single sparrow to fall to the ground without his will. The Lord Jesus says he has numbered every hair on your head. How can we say then that there's even a single moment in our life that is beyond the providential care, beyond the boundaries of God's care? But we still have our questions, don't we? Yes, this is true, but... But why? But why me? Right? We ask those questions sometimes. Why should this happen to me? And one of the things, perhaps, maybe we're not not even fully aware of it, is that when we ask this question, we're asking, why isn't God blessing me instead? Not realizing that this illness that God has sent into my life, God has given that to me for my blessing. or my financial hardship, or something else? Who are we to decide that what God sends into our life will not be a blessing for us? 
Does the Bible not teach, and do we not confess that for those who love God, all things work together for good? So is that true or isn't it? All things, not just some things, but all things. God will turn all things to our good for those who love him. You see, our God is not a God who looks the other way. Psalm 121, he is not a God who slumbers or sleeps. He watches over our coming and our going when we get up and we lie down. That means that God's providential care over us never ceases. In health or in sickness, in good times or in bad. Everything comes from his fatherly hand, we confess, right, in the catechism. And furthermore, it's not always just about us either. Our own illnesses, our own struggles, our own hardships and sufferings, that's not just merely about us. We have a tendency to think that all of God's providential care over us, or let me put it in a personal pronoun, all God's providential care over me is about me. But is that really the way it is? We know from Hebrews 12 that God's providential care does take the form of discipline. God sends things into our life to test us, to sanctify us, to refine us so that we can increasingly become more like Christ, be imitators of Christ. But from Ephesians 3, we can draw the conclusion that our suffering suffering is not merely for our own sake, but also for the sake of others. More importantly, God's providence in our life is for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his plan of redemption. And we are all part of God's grand plan. And our illnesses and our struggles and our pain somehow fit into that in a mysterious way. That's part of the mystery of the gospel. Because remember, Paul didn't ask to be sent to the Gentiles, did he? He writes that the stewardship of God's grace was given to him. It was given to him. He didn't ask for it. He didn't ask for his suffering and imprisonment either, but it was given to him. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord told the disciple Ananias of Antioch to anoint Paul for ministry. The Holy Spirit gave him these words concerning Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, and suffer he did. Paul suffered much in his life. But note what the Spirit inspires Paul to write here, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering. And why is it that we lose heart when we suffer, or when we watch others suffer? Why does it cause us to lose heart? Is it perhaps, brothers and sisters, because we tend to focus on the why? We plague ourselves with the question, why me, Lord? Or is it perhaps because we don't expect to suffer? Or because we think suffering's not good for us? Can't be good for us? It's counterintuitive, isn't it, to think that suffering is beneficial? Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So suffering is to be expected. 
Suffering is within the boundaries of God's plan for us. And whatever we're facing then, whether it's sickness or struggles or difficulties, it's, it's about accepting these things as coming from the hand of God in your life. And so the Bible teaches us, do not be surprised by suffering. It is part of God's plan for his children. And if that's true of Paul, and that's true of the Lord Jesus Christ, then certainly it's true of us too, isn't it? How then ought we to react to suffering? Well, we must continue to serve the Lord also in our suffering. Paul didn't use prison as an excuse to to get rid of his task as apostle to the Gentiles. He knew his imprisonment, no less than his success as a missionary, was under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that principle then also applies to us. Whatever you do in whatever circumstances you find yourself, we are to continue to serve the Lord. And we must not think that we only deserve the good things in life or that we're entitled to be, have a worry-free life or a successful life or a healthy life. Where in the scriptures do we get that promise? Nowhere. We're not entitled to those things. Whatever we do receive in life, it is an undeserved gift of grace which is revealed to us in the mystery of the gospel. That's the second point. Notice how many times Paul mentions the word grace. Verse 2. Surely you have heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Then verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And again in verse 8. This grace was given to me. So Paul has been made an administrator of God's grace. And it was given to him to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a tremendous message. A message that the Jews never expected, the Gentiles never imagined, a message to bring Gentiles and Jews together in one family, together as one body of Christ. That, Paul says, is the mystery of the gospel. And why is it a mystery? Well, the reason it's a mystery is because of the nature of grace. Pardon for sin, adoption into the family of God. And the hope of everlasting life, it is a free gift of grace. It is not earned. The gospel doesn't say that if you live a good life, if you put in the effort, that you will be blessed in this life. That's a message of works righteousness. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that if you work, the Lord will bless you, but that God works in you. That he prepares you to believe. That he makes you believe. That he changes you from the inside out. And makes you into a new person. Grace is free. The mercy of God comes to us as a gift. And to human reasoning that sounds illogical. You know we sometimes talk about how bad things happen to good people. You've probably heard that phrase before. But you don't find that in the Bible. That's not a Bible text. That's not a biblical slogan either. The truth of the matter is, good things happen to bad people. That's the gospel. 
It's not that bad things happen to good people, but good things happen to bad people. Mercy is given to sinners and God's grace to those who hate him. Jesus Christ died for his enemies. If there's anything in the world that doesn't make any sense, it's that, isn't it? The gospel tells us that good things happen to bad people. That's what happens to those whom God changes. That is the great mystery. You are guilty and yet innocent. You are unrighteous yet made righteous. You are a slave of Jesus Christ and yet free. You are a debtor and yet rich. In Christ you are a righteous sinner and a free slave. Justified, sanctified, glorified. And it's free, even though you don't want it. Because you won't even accept it unless the Spirit of Christ changes your heart and makes you accept this gift. Because by nature you are a rebel. And yet in Christ you are a rebel who is changed into a child of God and loved by him. And then he conforms you into the image of his Son, And you cannot do anything to earn this gift. Nothing at all. It is grace and grace alone. Receiving what you do not deserve. So the gospel congregation is a mystery because it's completely counterintuitive, isn't it? The gospel is that the Son of God emptied himself. He laid aside his heavenly splendor to accept earthly squalor. He gained his life by losing it. He received heavenly glory by giving it up. He made us children of God by becoming the Son of Man. He destroyed the burden of our sin by taking it upon himself. And being sinless, he became sin himself so that we could be blameless before God. And being innocent, he became guilt for us so that we could be acquitted before the judgment seat of God. No wonder that Paul speaks about the mystery of the gospel. And the more you think about it and ponder it and mull over it, the deeper the mystery becomes in a way, doesn't it? So profound. So completely counterintuitive. We receive the love of God, even though we are by nature haters of God. We're adopted as children of God, even though we voluntarily left the family of God. We receive all the spiritual gifts that come to us in Christ, even though by nature we want to grind those gifts into the dirt. Our Father in heaven reaches out to us, even though by nature we run away from him, like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. It's difficult to fathom the depth and the riches of God's grace, isn't it? Think of what happened to Paul of Tarsus, the persecutor, the hater of Christianity, who hated the Lord Jesus, the one who was, in his own words, the most zealous of all the Pharisees, able to become righteous by the law. If there was anyone who could do that, it would be Paul. But then Christ met him and took hold of him and loved him and offered him irresistible grace. And it changed him, and he became the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen by the power of God and now he's in jail and he's about to stand trial before Caesar and he says don't lose heart because of my suffering you see the gospel puts everything in a different context 
And yes, of course, suffering is hard. And it comes with anguish and distress and pain and, yes, spiritual struggles too. But it is a suffering that comes from the hand of our gracious and merciful God and Father who put Christ over all the powers and authorities in heaven and on earth. So scripture teaches us to see our sufferings in the light of God's love and his mercy and his grace in Jesus Christ. He is not a God who allows his providential care to pass you by. And his providential care was not absent either when his son hung on the cross and poured out his lifeblood there on Golgotha. That puts a different light on our suffering, doesn't it? Paul is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He is a prisoner for the one who died for him. He is a prisoner for the one who bled for him, for the one who suffered for him, for the one who became a slave for him. Again, that puts our sufferings in a different perspective, doesn't it? The infinite and all-wise God has put all things under Christ. And God had a plan to bring Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. And that plan included the imprisonment of Paul. In congregation, that's a perspective we need, too, in our suffering. Even though, at the time, it doesn't make sense. It's all part of the mystery of the gospel. My suffering, your suffering, the suffering of God's people, it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. Paul didn't deserve jail time. He had done nothing wrong. He stood up for the truth, and yet he's on trial. But he is a prisoner for Christ. And that's what gave him comfort. In fact, he could even rejoice in his suffering because Christ is making him part of the mystery, part of his plan of redemption for both Jews and Gentiles. And that puts us before another question. How do you know whether or not God is using your suffering for the salvation and sanctification of others? Have you ever thought of that? We tend to be so self-centered that even though we question why we are suffering, we still think that God is sending suffering into our lives just because of us and for us. But how do you know what God has in mind with your suffering? How do you know how God intends to use your suffering for the benefit of others and for the advancement of his kingdom? So do not lose heart, because God has a plan for it all. For your suffering, for the suffering that of those you hold dear, for the suffering endured by the church. All of that suffering is part of the mystery of the gospel. So let's not just ask why. Because if that's where we stay, just asking why, then we also have to be honest with ourselves and say, why did Christ have to suffer? Because if you think your suffering doesn't make sense, then you must conclude that Christ's suffering makes even less sense. But that's not how Scripture calls us to think and to live. Because think of the alternative. Suffering without Christ. That would be unimaginable. Suffering without Christ, you would have no hope and no confidence, would you? But suffering for Christ then you can rest in him because he is Lord over all 
including your current circumstances. And that perspective should color everything in our life because we've also been called to be ministers of God's grace. Our third point. Verse 7, Paul writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul was a minister of God's grace. And that word minister is the same word as the word for deacon, diakonos, servant, one who serves, one who, who hands out, dishes out something. While we too are to be deacons of the gift of grace that we receive. The perspective of understanding God's undeserved grace and love in your life is what should color your actions and your thoughts and your words. Think about it. If anything motivates us, should it not be grace? Isn't that what should drive us? Is it not the mystery of the gospel that should motivate us? As church as parents, as office bearers, as teachers, as as young people in the church. But so often we're issue-driven, aren't we? We're motivated by issues, issues at home, issues at work, issues in the church. There's a lot of issues in our life. There's a lot of issues in the church. And often we're issue-driven people. But shouldn't we be driven by the gospel of grace so then there's another question we could ask how are you a deacon a diakonos of God's grace what does that look like in your life how do you serve grace to others can people see that you are a grace filled saint would others be able to point to you as an example of a grace-filled, grace-driven Christian. Is your speech gracious? Is it seasoned with wisdom so people are, are happy to hear you? Do you live the way Paul says in Philippians 2, that you would consider others better than yourself? Is your life marked by a forgiving attitude? Do you use your tongue to bless and encourage or to criticize and tear people down? And when you get together with fellow believers, are you talking about issues and about problems and about the weather? Do you ever talk about grace? Do you have joy in speaking with one another about grace and the mystery of the gospel? Can you even explain what that means? And more importantly, do we model it? Do we know what it means to model it also as a church? Because that's what we've been called to do. We've been called to model grace, to make known the manifold wisdom of God, or as Paul puts in Ephesians 5, to be imitators of Christ. Well, congregation being an apostle was not Paul's career choice. It was given to him as a sacred stewardship of God's grace. He was made a minister of God's grace. It's a passive verb, meaning that he didn't choose it for himself. He was made to do that. God acted upon him. On the day of his conversion, the Lord told Paul, get up, go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. So he was drafted 
drafted into the army of God. Not free to do his own thing, but to do as his master commanded and go where it took him, even to prison. Well, we are not apostles. Yet if you know Christ, you are his servant, you are his diakonos, his deacon called to administer the gift of grace that you have received, to administer it and to serve it in the lives of others. And when he calls, we must answer, even if he calls us to suffer for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, because it's part of the mystery of the gospel, part of God's eternal plan. So, let us not lose heart over our suffering or the suffering of others. Remember what a great privilege it is to be a steward of the manifold wisdom of God. Then we can serve him joyfully. Amen.